Welcome to the New Stories Podcast, Season 2. Well, thanks everybody for joining me on the podcast. And I'm really excited about this particularly timely conversation as we celebrate the school's 60th anniversary. And we've got a breadth of folks on the call. So many things we could highlight about the 60th, but this particular one is going to be about sort of our campus and the hands-on nature of our students and, and our faculty, everybody really in building the experience around our campus. As we jump into that, would love for you all to introduce yourselves and say your name, anything you want to tell us about yourselves, but also please include what year you started teaching and working or working at Sandy Spring Friends School and what brought you to the school. I will call on folks and I'll start with Bob. Bob Hoke, I started at Sandy Spring in 1979, I was a history teacher for 40 years. I coached various sports. I was a college counselor for a number of years while also teaching. And my uh, children are both graduates of, of Sandy Spring Friends School. And I'm now retired and mostly farming full time. Awesome. David Hickson. Yeah, David Hickson. I'm now in my 21st year at the school. It's interesting to think that when I came to the school, Bob had already been here as long as I've been here now. <laughs> but I spent my first 10 years serving as the head of the upper school and the next 10 years as assistant head of school. And now I retired from that position in, in June of this year, at the end of June, and I'm now teaching part-time at the school, starting my third decade. I'm Joanna Cowie. I work in the library and in the archives. I'm an inquiry guide here. That's my latest and greatest title. I originally started working very part-time in 1998 and then moved into a closer to full-time and then full-time starting in 2002 in the library. And I came to the school because I had friends working here. I have a husband who is an alum. I have two children who have gone and graduated from school. And I just felt very connected through friends and family. Thank you. I'm Kwame Darko. This is my uh, fifth year as a teacher here. I started in 2017 teaching math, and now I am the Dean of Boarding, and I'm still teaching BC Calculus. I have two young ones in the lower school, and really the first time I came on Sandy Spring campus was in the mid-90s, looking for a boarding school, and started school here in 1995 as a boarder and a national student. I've loved this place. This place really has made me who I am, and I'm glad that I'm back here to give some more back. Thank you all for joining. What a great cross-section of folks to share in the shared history of Sandy Spring Friends School. And I want to take us back for a minute to 1961, and this actually may have happened before 1961. The school was founded in 61, but the story of the founding. Brooke Moore, this might have been, and I'm looking at Joanna, 1959, Joanna? 1958. They stood up in the meeting, right, and declared, I think what we should do is to start a school. And he felt called to do so. And then someone gave a dollar, is that right? The story goes that he stood up in meeting and shared a message that he felt called to start a school under the care of the Sandy Spring meeting. And after the meeting let out, when people were sort of having their social time, many people said, great idea, but no money, no expertise, 
no place to put it, a lot of that. And then the next day he received a $100 check from the postmistress whose family, who until her death gave $100 a year to the school and whose family has continued that tradition in her honor. And he felt like that was the way opening. And so from there, the, the meeting formed a committee to look at both starting a school and also there had been great interest in starting a place for older Quakers to retire to and be taken care of. And both of those things happened. The committee split into two efforts at some point, and the school was the first up. And Esther Scott gave some land that was still was Esther Scott on. was a member of the meeting, and the land that the school is on, the 140-odd acres, was her family farm. And she lived in a house called Mount Pleasant, which was near to, but not exactly on the spot where our Mount Pleasant sits now. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that story. And in the telling of it, there's two words that always get connected with the school's founding story. And they are the words radical optimism. Interesting, because I don't know that I've ever heard of radical optimism until people put it together with the story of the founding of Sandy Spring Friends School. So I want to go out to you all and say, when you hear radical optimism, what do you think of that term? What does that mean for you? And what does that mean in the founding of Sandy Spring Friends School? How is our story an example of radical optimism? Well, I, I think with Brooke Moore, he always talked about how just tell me I can't do something, and then that'll just inspire me even more. The school initially was three grades, 10, 11, and 12. We added an auxiliary ninth grade program at a community house, and people were, well, you know, you can't really add a ninth grade. Then we added a middle school, and everyone was, well, you know, that's not really a good idea. I mean, you're at a high school. And then we took over Friends Elementary School and added a, an elementary school. And, you know, at each level, there is a, a significant group of naysayers. This is too much. And yet we managed to do all of it and succeeded. And, you know, not without some ups and downs, but we were able to accomplish. And I think we still accomplish, you know, building a new high school. Well, how are you going to build a new high school? And yet we did. So I think that speaks to the idea of, number one, radical optimism. And, and number two, just start by telling us we can't do something. That's totally Brooke Moore's story. And when I think about the optimism piece from that, I think about the expression way opening or way will open or way opens, which Quakers use quite a bit. And the radical optimism has to do with having the faith, having the faith and belief in your community, in this case, the meeting community, that if you proceed with energy and positivity and hard work, that the way will open and what's meant to be will happen. And at each one of those points Bob was talking about, people proceeded despite the naysayers and the way opened. I think that has happened in sort of those large chunks on an administrative level, but also in smaller everyday ways. Kids starting clubs and taking on challenges or petitioning administration to change rules or to create something that idea of if you lean into it, way will open, speaks to the radical optimism that you speak of. I'd like to tack on to that. And, you know, I think about the time at which Sandy Spring was being conceived. I believe that the Montgomery County schools at that time were segregated schools. And as I've read the document that talks about the original founding vision of the school, it was a very inclusive vision 
to, to me, that's an expression of radical optimism that at, at that time to, you know, to found a school that, that, that really saw itself as an inclusive community. And as Joanna was saying, you know, a lot of students, a lot of schools, at least I've, the schools I've been at, because I, I worked at other schools prior to Sandy Spring, there was almost a little bit of a sense of, you know, how do we control the students? How do we mold the students? Whereas at Sandy Spring, it's always felt like to me, we're engaging the students, we're partnering with the students in the educational process. And I, I think that's that's just such a radical idea. Even now, you know, with progressive education being around for more than 100 years, it's still a, a radical notion in education. I think it was right around that time that the county schools desegregated. There were various different levels happening during the late 50s. I think it I know busing started in um, 67, and I think that schools were they, were, they had desegregated teaching in the county schools by 1960 at any rate. From an alumni perspective, as a student, I thought that it was crazy taking my first steps here and realizing the amount of trust and energy that was giving to students. That was completely, that was something that I was never used to for adults to say, hey, you have a say in what it is that we're doing. That was radically optimistic of the um, adults to say, wait, you're going to give us that ability? What? To me, that trust that was given to students with the understanding, I think that we are going to mess up, but that we're really going to learn from that. Then, you know, that was a very powerful thing that I'd never been in a system like that. It really helped me as going into college to be able to advocate for myself, whereas I had peers who are like, oh, I can't go talk to that professor. Whereas I had learned to be able to at least take that step and say, hey, man, I have a conversation with you. So I think that to me, that was, that's something that speaks to that. As I'm hearing y'all, it's clicking for me that optimism without the radical part, just plain old optimism is a, a hope or a faith in the improbable. But that radical optimism is almost a hope and a faith in the impossible with a little bit of sweat equity attached to it. <laughs> I would say a lot of sweat equity. <laughs> and so you believe in it so much that you're rolling up your sleeves and digging into it. It makes me think so much about just the founding of our school and the stories told about folks who literally built the school with their hands, including the students, right? That radical optimism of we're coming to a place that really is even fully finished, but we're going to finish it together. And, and I wonder if y'all will speak to just the spirit of that. And, and if that spirit still lives at our school, that sense of radical optimism, how does it thrive today? And even that sweat equity from the community. In a bridge to that, when you're talking about that optimism piece, the first building built on campus was Scott House. When they started it, they did not have enough money to finish it, right? They had about half of what they needed. And they, with very much radical optimism, said, we're going to start a new school. We don't have students yet. We have, at that point, they had a headmaster, but they didn't have faculty. They had a piece of land to put it on. They didn't have any roads in. They just started building it with the faith that they could finish it. And by the time they did finish it, they had enough money to build more hall. So some sort of steamrolling ball going downhill kind of thing happened. And of course, they started that building late for the opening year and it did not have its occupancy papers 
when school started, and yet students and faculty came anyway, and they lived with families locally, families from the meeting, and one teaching family, John Burroughs, and I'm forgetting her first name, they had six kids, and they basically built Walbrook. So they built the structure that is now the base of the lower school building. So they would have a place to live while they were teaching school. And students who showed up early also lodged with families and they helped do things. They cleaned furniture and things that were going into buildings. They painted, they did what needed to be done to get themselves and their school ready for school. And that started off, it started our school with this idea of belonging to us and also we belong to it that the students really felt like this was their home i think the first year you have families taking that optimistic jumble to send their kids to a school that hasn't existed before and you have people agreeing to take jobs in a school that hasn't existed before and has no track record of paying anybody and that's a lot of investment of energy from everybody and there was i think a lot of trial and, and error and a lot of modeling of the vulnerability that we talk about needing to model for kids these days, it just was. Since the community started to grow with everybody hands in, and it continued that way for a long time, I don't think we do quite as much of that, but I know that when my kids graduated, they had, that, they had something of that sense of the campus belonged to them and they belong to the campus. So there was a care do, care doing, caregiving duty and also a sense of ownership. And I think it's one of the things that our alum talk about sometimes they come back and they're like, oh no, this is all wrong because they held such a pride in the way that the school was when they were here. Right. It might be all great and all wrong at the same time. Wait, you guys get paid now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I'm probably the only one here that can remember this point, but when I first came, twice a week in the daily schedule was a jobs period. Mm. Uh, and every faculty member supervised the job and every student was assigned a job. We didn't have uh, a maintenance service. We, we didn't have a cleaning service, okay? So the teachers and the students were responsible for keeping the space. And so they vacuumed the floors, cleaned the boards, uh, emptied the garbage, and Interestingly, we didn't have a meeting house when we started. So meeting was in Clifton. And my advisory had to set up the chairs before meeting. And then we had to take the chairs down after meeting. You know, so, so in terms of being invested in it, everybody had sweat equity in this at least twice a week. And some did it very willingly and were excited about it. And others, maybe not quite as willingly, but, you know, bought into it. You know, this is the deal. This is what you do. Bob, Bob, I remember jobs. You were, they had jobs when you were here, Uh We had jobs. It was one of those things. In fact, I think I actually cleaned your classroom a couple of times because <laughs> I had Peter Brown upstairs and I had to go downstairs during advisory. You know go. what? You're right. You're right. <laughs> and, and then we also had, I remember it was either clean the classroom board downstairs or go pick up or sweep the sidewalk back when the parking lot was in front of Moore. Right. Again, it goes to, we were trusted to do these things. And I look back on it now and I was like, yeah, we, we just kind of did it. I was kind of talking with my brother about, you know, on dorm, we have, they still have jobs, but it's not every day now. There's there are people to make sure that the clean also gets done. And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, like, 
<laughs> they don't have to do trash every day. We were kind of trusted to do those things. And some did willingly and some did, <laughs> did <laughs> you know? I think that's a challenge for us going forward. I think a lot of that spirit is still here yeah. of, of the school kind of sort of notion of stewardship. You take care mm -hmm. of your community. That's still very much part of the spirit of the place. But as the expectations for schools have risen and, and parent expectations, I think have grown stronger around cleanliness and hygiene. And, you know, it's, it was always a schedule challenge, to, you know, in terms of the, the work jobs and stuff. I think we look for ways to still inject some of that into the student experience. Just for example, in the woodworking class I teach, we do one of the projects that ends up being kind of a community focused project. For many years, we made benches, cedar benches that are now still sprinkled around campus. And I have students saying, hey, where do you think my bench is, you know, that we worked on that kind of thing. I think we need to be creative and find ways to continue to inject some of that in, into our program. It's not as easy as it was. No, there's a lot more, like you were saying, there's a lot, a broader set of expectations upon us. There was a little ad the first year the school was out that they put in these little tiny classified ads. One question was, why does it cost $1,900 to send my kids to Sandy Spring Friend School? That was the tagline for the ad. And then there was, that was Q. And then there was an A because we haven't figured out how to do it for any less. But if you can figure it out, please tell us. And if you have extra to give, please help support some other student come. So I think things were way simpler when we started. We had an advisory program, didn't we, David, that went through your time where advisories each had a job. I remember the recycling folks came into the library a lot because we were a collection place for batteries. And the middle school still has committees which are based around service, not necessarily about sort of hands-on work. It might be planning an event or things like that. So we have, I think, really diminish the hands-on portion of the school, particularly for students who don't seek it out. It's there if you seek it out in woodworking and in farming for fitness and various other places. But we've also broadened a little bit, at least for the younger students, having ways to have input and impact on serving their community in other ways, taking on recycling challenges or other initiatives. Shamanda, you bring out a really good point and, and maybe sign of the times 60 years later, you know, our students are putting their physical hands in it less, but their mental hands, their brain power, and perhaps so much more when I think about the influence they have over the curriculum, over the decision-making of the school. There, there was that era where you, you had to physically build it, and now we're in this era where we're programmatically building it. And I do see the spirit of students putting their hands in that. So it's so really interesting. Shifting us some to thinking about, because we're sitting in this wonderful sort of tension, healthy tension of what was and now what is. And I'm looking at David Hickson because I know you do a lot of work with the Sandy Spring Museum. And so thinking even before Sandy Spring Friends was, what was in this area that's so rich with history around the school? 
Yeah, boy, that's a, <laughs> there's a lot of directions to go with that question. The historically Sandy Spring area, you know, nothing was incorporated, right? So the original Sandy Spring community was kind of thought of as a six or seven mile radius around the meeting house. It was a distance that people could get to in their wagons to attend meeting on a first day or Sunday and then get home, I think by dusk. I think it was probably an all day proposition in those days when Sandy Spring was being founded. Sandy Spring is not an incorporated town. It's a much larger area area than we think of just the little crossroads at Norwood Road and then one at Route 108. So there were not only Quakers in, in Sandy Spring, there were Episcopalians and others. There were enslaved people who were brought here who were part of the community. I mean, there were many different parts of the community, but the Quaker community was a real driving force. And there were there was a school, Sherwood Academy, that came, that was in Sandy Spring before, before Sandy Spring was here. I think it went up to the very early 1900s at the time that the public school system was founded. And I've been told, Bob or Joanna may remember more detail on this, but the Sherwood Academy, I think was founded by the by the Quaker community and, and became the model or part of the founding of the public school system at that time. So for a while there was not an independent school here and then Sandy Spring Friends School started. But yeah, the Quakers were definitely involved with getting the museums to the Sandy Spring Museum. We have more than one museum in the community, but the Sandy Spring Museum and, and really kind of shaping the founding of the Sandy Spring Bank. I think we're Quaker members of the community, if I remember correctly. So and there was an insurance company that was very active in the community as one of the major businesses for a period of time. I think it got bought out by a larger company at some point. But so, yeah, the, a lot of connections, uh, a lot of connections between the larger Sandy Spring community and, uh, and the school. A particular connection with us is the influence of local Quakers in education in the area. So the Sherwood School was started by the meeting. It was in the care of the meeting and it was handed over in some form or way. I'm not sure if it was purchased or given or what, but it became what is now Sherwood High School. So there's a direct connection from that Sherwood School to Sherwood High School. It wasn't the first school that Quakers started in the area. There have been six or seven over a couple of centuries, but it was one of the successful schools so much that when the county was starting a public school system, that school was incorporated into the public school system. It's interesting too that when the county was starting a public library system, the Sherwood Library, which was very close to the old Sherwood School on, on 108, was became part, it became one of the first branches of the Montgomery County Library System the year that was put together. But also one of the fam local families, the Hollowells, one of their ancestors who was local, lived locally here was one of the founders of the University of Maryland. A lot of energy coming out. Sandy Spring was the place where farmers first started using bat guano for fertilizer, which was a huge revolutionarily important thing at the time. It was a early local form of refrigeration was somebody delivering local butter downtown in a refrigerated packed with ice and straw cart of some fashion. There are a lot of really strong connections with Quakers from the area doing that radical optimism thing, you know, like figuring out how to make the stuff happen. David mentioned the bank and the bank was family owned and run and they allowed women to have, a female could have an account 
whether she was single or married. And there were three brothers that ran it. And the story is one was deaf and bank robbers came to the bank and they shouted to, for everyone to get down or they would shoot. And the deaf brother didn't hear it and he didn't get down and he got shot. And that got the local community concerned and was the catalyst for the state police. You're talking about the Sandy Spring Museum, uh, which is a beautiful facility. And, but the architect who designed it is, is a former Sandy Spring art teacher. Hmm. Uh, he taught art at Sandy Spring, went back to school, got his architecture degree, and he is the designer um, of the Sandy Spring Museum, which is just a, a fantastic facility. And just one other sort of connection, a couple of years, well, I'm not sure how many years at this point in my life, but Bruce Evans, who was head of the uh, arts department and drama teacher, he and Tom Canby, a local Sandy Spring resident, wrote up a, a play called Hide Your Horses. And mm. it was based on a real incident of a Confederate group from John Singleton Mosby's army uh, attacked a Sandy Spring store. And a group of Quakers got together and went after them. And it's called the, the Battle of Ricketts Run. This is what happens when you ask a history teacher to, to participate. And in the play, you know, they recreated this, the tension that it created between those in the meeting who felt that it was wrong to take up arms to go after this group and those that actually did take up arms um, and go mm -hmm. after it. So again, there's another connection to the history you know, with, with the school. So much there, right? And thinking about the school sits right adjacent to the Underground Railroad Trail and the mixing of the races in the area with some of the first Black homeowners in the country were owning their homes right here in Olney. And so there's a lot of thinking about our seniors last year who gifted us, and I think it's on its way, a plaque to sit in front of the school to acknowledge the Native American tribes that were in this area right way before. And so really interesting to think about the land that we sit on and the histories of all of that. And Bob, you took us to architecture and it's making me think Kwame, when you were a student, you must have gone to school in Moore Hall and now you teach in the new upper school building. And so in what ways has just the architecture of the school and the needs of the school changed? And in what ways is going to school in that new upper school building just the same as going to school in Moore Hall? It's interesting because I remember my first class was actually in Hartshorn with Ari mm. and having to dance in his class. And after learning to dance in history class and walking over to uh, Moore Hall to go see Anne for English class, and <laughs> it was just this two very different teaching styles <laughs> where you know, and walking through the halls of Moore Hall, just the fact that you're going from one part of campus to the other, that walk was something. And so to me, that's a very unique part of school, right? Where while a majority of your classes were in Moore Hall, it wasn't all of it. And you had to kind of go to Yarnall for your science and some math. And had to go over to Hartshorn for your history, Clifton for dance with Arlene. And now everyone is in one place in this cool, awesome building that you walk into and the lights turn on and it's automatic. But something that through both the building really is not 
as transformative as the teachers, right? Like for me, the teachers were the ones that I'm like, oh my goodness, remember when Ari rolled up a carpet and says, we're gonna learn the pata pata dance or, you know, <laughs> um, and you're like, what? That's not how you say it for, no, but you know, you know, going going to Dave's class across the way, going to Bob's class and more, you know, and I remember going to Bob and Shanae for helping me get into college. So it's nostalgic for me to be here and then see across the way and say, wow, the other day I took a walk through more and going to the third floor and realizing, oh, that used to be an apartment. Jamie Savitz at the time was staying there. That's the one constant in our world, right? Is things will change and how we deal with that change. I know there are going to be alums that come and like, this is a travesty. How can you not walk across campus to go to class? What is with this building? And you just have to remind them the teachers are still passionate. I'm here and I'm sitting in this office and I'm as an alum, I'm a little like, oh, but we've grown. We've grown and it's sweet, you know, and it's also bitter, right? Because I'm not going to see anyone running across the, you know, going from Clifton, running and booking it to try and make it to class in Yarno. And what's really going to happen when you're late? But we still run, you know? <laughs> <laughs> now, you've hit on some intentionality in the building of the campus is that it was built to be a walking campus for the green space and the building space to kind of converse with each other. And you were not meant to stay in one building the whole school day. It was definitely meant to be out and enjoyed. You know, Kwame, you were talking about we've grown and we have, but wondering as we wrap this up, We've looked at the past 60 as we look at the next 60. In which ways do you hope the school, all of you, will grow? What do you wish for the school as it, when we get to the 120th, what do you wish is either still there, is not yet there, but hopefully will be (laughs) when we get there? I think my biggest wish is that the school become available uh, to more people. And I feel like it's the mission of the school and I know some alums and you know people in the community say, well, you're getting too big, you're getting too big. I don't see that at all. I see us expanding our mission and finally living up to it more that we did in the beginning. There were so few that could benefit. And I would love to see the school continue to grow. I would love to see our endowment grow uh, so that we could help people. And, you know, we talk about diversity at the school, and I think we've done a you know, fairly good job with that, but I don't think we've done enough diversity in terms of economics. And I would like to see us to be able to do more there. I mean, that's my vision for the future of the school is to be able to allow more people from different backgrounds, economic backgrounds, to attend Sandy's Principal. I would second what Bob says. I would add a, a different dimension, and that is that it seemed like the first week I was on campus, I was involved in discussions about, are we Quaker enough? Are we losing our sense of community? That, that sort of thing. And I actually am glad to hear those conversations going on, because I think as long as we continue to ask those questions, then I feel like we're paying attention and that we're not going to lose it because we're asking a question and paying attention. So I would hope in 60 years, I come back and those discussions are still going on. One of the things I would hope for, as Kwame had mentioned before, that it is the people. I think it's often the people that and who you meet in an institution that makes that institution great or terrible or whatever it is going to be for you. And I think that the school has consistently done that. And some of the ways we show that is that we have alum who come back 
to the school to teach because they got something here and they want to be part of giving that kind of something and not because it's safe and not because it's easy, but because they appreciated a richness in their life and they want to make that happen for other students. I'm not sure there's ever been a time without a teacher after the first few years coming back to campus in some capacity. I came to the school just after there was all three divisions together. And one of the things that I love and appreciate about that because it's my time is that age diversity, which we have. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a real asset. And we're doing some great things with that. I'd like to see us do a little bit more with that because we are building learners, but we are also adult learners and, and teachers and student teachers. And I would love to see a time where the endowment of the school was such that families didn't have to make a choice because we just didn't have more aid. Um, that we would be able to offer places to anybody who could come. Although I'm a little, I guess Bob, I'm on the other side or on the nervous side about growing any bigger. Um, in the library, I used to like be able to identify all students from four years old to 12th grade. And I can't do that anymore. Although it's also COVID complicated. I'm going to jump in and I think I'll echo everyone's sentiment about reaching more people, right? Because one of the things that I loved about being here as a student that I want to keep seeing in the next forever and ever is when I came here, I saw so many people of so many different backgrounds. And the shock to me was all these different people being able to stay in this one place. The biggest shock was there was a senior at the time when I came who was from Syria and his best friends were three Jewish kids from down the street. And he told me, like, he says, Kwame, if you saw me my first year here, this would never have happened in a million years. Like his first year here, that was not possible. That was not a possibility. And to hear him tell me that, look, you're going to get walls that you have set up broken down and seeing it happen while I'm at school here. That's the beauty of this place for me is walls that we set up, that society sets up for us, get broken down in a place like this. And I want that to keep going. You've taken us right back to where we started, Kwame, with the radical optimism that <laughs> whatever that looks like in 2081, we hope it is still living, thriving and exemplified up here on Norwood Road, that they're pushing against the grain in all the right ways and in all the right directions, and they're rolling up whatever versions of sleeves look like in 2081 um, <laughs> together to get it done. <laughs> so thank you for joining for this conversation. We go over 60 years of our school's history, sitting amongst many more years of just national and local history is a lot to undertake, but I think we touched on some key points this afternoon and I'm excited to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the school. And we throw all those intentions that you just put out there up so that uh, way will open in the appropriate ways. Thank you. Just to do it. Thank you, Thank you Rodney. everybody. <laughs>